It's good to see you all. Thanks for coming. Thanks for making us part of your week. Really glad you're here. I know that at this point, the semester's starting to feel more like college and less like camp. You have work. You're busy. And uh, maybe the first hints of, uh, you know, school anxiety is overweighing social anxiety and welcome to college. Uh, but I really am glad you're here. I hope you find RUF to be a warm and refreshing place for you. Uh, this semester we're in Romans and we're studying how God makes all things new. And it's play on words because what we find in Romans is God's doing all kinds of things, all new things, in order to make all things new. He's doing all kinds of things in the book to restore this whole world. Now, there are very many people that are cynical and skeptical that uh, the message of Christianity has much to offer. Uh, yesterday we commemorated, not celebrated, commemorated the 12th anniversary of 9-11. And uh, you know, after the uh, initial patriotism and mourning wore off, uh, there were very many cultural critics and skeptics that uh, voiced this common refrain that religion is the cause for all the problems in the world. Uh, it, sort of, you know, it sort of hung on the terrorists and others as well. Uh, this has been the rallying cry for the new atheists like Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins for quite a while. That religion is the cause and not the answer for all the problems in the world. And what might surprise you tonight is that the Bible agrees that misdirected devotion, misdirected worship, is powerfully dangerous and destructive. That's what this text is about. The misdirected devotion is powerfully dangerous and destructive. So the text I'm reading tonight's a hard one, I'm not going to lie. We're going to read it, and then we're going to pray and ask for God's help. So we're in Romans 1, 17 and following. For in it, that being the gospel, the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. All right, let's pray. 
Good Holy Father, we pray that you would show us wonderful things in your word. Show us where they're true of us. Show us where the good news is in this text. Show us yourself, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm actually uh, doing something a little strange tomorrow. In the middle of September, I'm heading home. Home for me is, well, formerly home is Virginia. And the occasion for my trip is my 20-year high school reunion. That's right. I've been out of high school longer than you've been alive, some of you. It's crazy. I can't believe it. I really I can't believe it. And uh, I am not a, uh, by nature, a very sentimental person that thinks about these kind of things a lot. But I have been thinking about this a little bit. And thinking about my glory days and my days of shame and honor. All these things in high school. And, I, and there was one day that summed up both. Both the glory and the shame at the same time. And I'll take you there. So uh, I ran track. And I was pretty good. I was a good runner. And I, I remember well the first race that really mattered that I ever won. There were some races where I won, where I won but I was running against scrubs. And it didn't really matter. But on this particular day, I was running against good competition, including my teammates who were really good. And I not only won two races, the half mile and the mile, but I set personal records in both and qualified for state. I ran two great races, the best races I'd ever run in my life up to that point. Which is why it was strange, you know, because I had really devoted myself to becoming a good athlete and a good runner, that for most of the afternoon I mourned. I had uh, achieved victory in this one area of life, in this one devotion, but in my chief devotion at that time, I had failed and I had lost. And that chief devotion at the time was named Glinda. <laughs> so uh, Glinda was my... Uh, my, my first real deep crush, and uh, I was 16 at the time, and uh, like is often the case with first loves, we had all kinds of things in common. We had Latin class in common, <laughs> and we ran track together, and that was probably about it, but <laughs> so we were smart, and, but you know, you like each other, and then you start finding common interests or manufacturing them before long, we're spending time together, listening to the same kind of music, reading similar books, uh, and even adopting one another's language, begin to talk alike, which is really funny because she was from Alabama. Um, and this was just sort of natural, the way the relationship works. When you're devoted to someone, you begin to sort of be like them. And uh, for the most part, the, the, the benefits I reaped from this relationship were great. Uh, confidence. I remember walking the halls proudly. I had a girlfriend. She was smart. She was pretty. My basketball team noticed. My coach called it out. You know, everyone was happy for me. Uh, you know, companionship was nice too. All those things. But I mean, there was there was some blessings that came with with a relationship, with a devotion, and uh, I enjoyed it. And then, as you might imagine, I had my uh, naive sixteen-year-old heart broken, and uh, I discovered some things and. You know, that day and the next few months about life and love and my own heart. I, uh, I, I discovered that I was capable of deep jealousy, that I could be petty. I discovered uh, how desperately I wanted to be liked and accepted and loved. I, uh, I discovered how deep the pain of rejection can go. I discovered how wide the reach of that could go throughout my life and length of time. This left a black mark on me for a couple months. I just had a hard time recovering. And uh, it left me sort of isolated. Emotionally, I was isolated and cut off from others and had a hard time engaging others. Now, at this point, some of you are thinking, wow, how sweet. 
And some of you are thinking, man, what a loser. And uh, yeah, it's sort of both true, I suppose. Um, but i tell you this story, not just because I'm going home, but because it illustrates the power of devotion or of love. Or we'll talk about worship in a few minutes. And what it can do to run your life, to power you through life, but also ruin it at times. And what our text is going to tell us, and the Bible tells us over and over, is that we are wired, hardwired for devotion, for worship. But we can go terribly off the rails with some pretty dangerous consequences. And it's not just a personal problem that affects everyone. It's something that all of us share. Maybe not exactly like that, but we're all wired this way, and we all have a propensity to go off the tracks. And the ripples run through the depth of our person and throughout the width of humanity. So... Uh, what we're going to see tonight is that our hearts are prone to misdirected devotion, but God's determined to make things right. It's a difficult text, but I think it really does boil down to this. God is determined to make things right, even though our hearts are often misdirected in their devotion. We're going to talk about our design for devotion, that we're designed for this, that we have misdirected devotion, and then lastly, that God's determined to make things right. So... Uh, what's going to happen is the first and last point are going to be pr- pretty short. The middle one is going to be a little bit longer. The first is that we're designed for devotion. And our text challenges right away with the reality that we know God and we worship, but not like we're supposed to. Uh, in verse 18, we read, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's a pretty hard way to start. But what Paul is saying is, well, we know a lot about God. And we don't want to know it. And we actively suppress it. We know God, verse 18, we know the truth about him. Verse 19 and 20, we know some divine qualities about him, his power and his existence. Verse 21 just says, we know God. But we're also worshipers of something, but seldom God. This is what verse 21 and 23 tells us, that we exchange what we know. Instead of actually worshiping God as he revealed himself, We have an impulse to worship something, but it's seldom the God of the Bible. So we're wired for worship, but also the world itself is wired. We're wired to worship. We can't help it. Theologians have called this the seed of religion. We all sort of have this embedded impulse to worship something. Not only are we wired for worship, but the whole world is wired this way. Verse 20 tells us that God has made the world in such a way that it screams at us, certain aspects of his character. It screams at us that God created it and that he's powerful and that he's good. So the world is wired to show us something about God. The world is also wired in such a way that when we don't worship God as we should, we suffer the consequences. That is, God made the world in such a way as creator with us as sort of second in command that when we don't properly relate to God, everything else begins to crumble apart. I... uh, it's a new precedent in RUF history. I have an overhead. <laughs> I made this. I stole the idea from somebody else, but I made it. And there's basically th- only three ways, really, in which a creator God can relate to its creation. This, is pretty much, this graph pretty much sums up all of human thought and religion regarding the way a God could cr- relate to its creation. And the first is pantheism. Uh, you know, God's the blue and Earth's the creation's the yellow. And pantheism is the idea that God creates creation and then interacts with it in such a way that they're virtually indistinguishable. So every rock, every rabbit, and every cancer cell has a trace of divinity in a way. And you really can't say there's any part of creation that's not divine. 
the secondly is deism, which is the idea that God creates the world and then completely walks away. It's the watchmaker idea. He winds up the watch and then walks away and leaves it alone. And in this model, in these two models, you have very different ideas of the way of worshiping. In the first, you sort of worship everything and you're afraid of everything because if God is anywhere in anything, you can be... You could maybe tick them off by doing anything, like I'm afraid to eat the rabbit or turn over the rock or even kill the cancer cell because God's in them all. And in the deistic construction or understanding of the world, does it really matter how you worship or not? Because God is distant and doesn't interact with the world anyway. If he's really distant, who, why does he care what we do? Well, this is important because Christianity is not either one of those. And we often think it is, but it's not. The biblical way of understanding the way God creates the world is the last one, which is that God creates the earth separate from himself, a distinct entity. God creates the earth, and then he creates his creation, and he gives it its own distinct entity, and he continues to interact with it, but never confuses himself with it. And this is important, because it means that the way we worship God affects the way we relate to everything on the earth, and that he is still very much interested in this place and in what we do here. So, this is for your benefit. I hope it helps. If not, forget the last three minutes. All right. Um, well, we're designed for worship. God's created a world where we can know him and something of him and worship him and relate rightly to him and everything else. The problem is it's often misdirected. And it's misdirected in a couple different ways. The first is that our devotion tends to be largely self-centered. Uh, Paul sums up pretty much all the badness in chapter 1 with two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness. In verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And ungodliness basically means a lack of reverence or love for God. You know there's God there, but you just don't care. You don't love him, you don't respect him, and you don't care. And verse 21 goes on and says, By and large, humanity knows there's a God, but refuses to honor him or to give thanks. Thanks, but no thanks, God. Appreciate this award you gave us. No, well, we thank you for the world, but not for you. And what you have here is a determined rejection. People are determined to reject God consciously from their minds so that they can do what they want. And, and they don't stop worshiping. By and large, we're worshiping creatures. What we do is find what we think is a better substitute. They exchange, verse 23, the glory of God for images. Now, you know, we don't do that. We're too sophisticated for that, right? This is what the Greeks and Romans did. Literally, build a statue of a great man, worship it. Or an idol of some animal, and worship it. Or conceptually think of some kind of pagan god. It's a mixture of a man and an animal, and worship it. That's what the pagan world did, and the Greco-Roman world did. We're far too sophisticated for that. We would never do that. So, uh, you know, we have far more sophisticated uh, substitutes for God. And some excellent scholarships have been done on this. I just read an article today in The Onion uh, that dead nails us for our divine substitutes. This is who we are. This is short. In a new report released Wednesday by the Pew Research Center, Americans indicated that when it comes to what they expect from their country, all they really want is to be safe, happy, rich, comfortable, and entertained at absolutely all times. <laughs> yep. That's exactly right. That is our God. Uh, famously, this, uh, well, maybe not famous to you, but uh, a recent Episcopal priest, he just died, and uh, he's fairly well known for one day uh, preaching at a very well-off church and whipping out a $20 bill and burning it and saying, I just defaced your God. Uh, we worship comfort and pleasure 
and power and wealth. And it may look like different things, especially when you're in college, you know, but they tend to be all derivations of those things. So social status and acceptance is actually power. Social power and cachet. Your good grades, what's the end? Is it social power and cachet or because you want comfort? They're all sort of related in there somehow. And this is what we worship. We are self-centered. And the effects is that we then become self-corrupted. And this is probably the most difficult part of the text for many. Verse 21 and following, the idea that what we do spiritually affects who we are as persons. But what we find in the text is that who we worship and what we worship has profound personal consequences. Both epistemically, this lost everyone, except for like two philosophers who are like, whoa, he said epistemically, and ethically. So epistemically, basically this meaning, uh, our minds are darkened. That's what the text says. That somehow, because of our worship of things that are not true and our stubborn refusal to see what is true, our brains are broken. So the text says we, we basically have futile thinking. And for the last 300 years in Western civilization, we think we are the smartest, most reasonable creatures ever. We worship reason. We have. And frankly, it's really crazy because you make bad decisions all the time. You do, right? I mean, some of them are small and sort of silly. Some of them are big. We do it all the time. We make bad decisions, and yet we think, I can trust my reason. Uh, So epistemically, we're broken. But also, and that's the brunt of the chapter, ethically, we become filled with unrighteousness. And this is a failure to love others. Frankly, we become corrupted. Because of our rejection of God and our worship of idols, substitute gods, we become like the things we worship, and we don't love others well. Well, uh, what happens at the end of this text is that Paul proceeds to list 21 vices in a row, these adjectives. You notice them, right? Uh, I'll start. Uh, filled with unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, and it just goes on and on and on. It ends on a high note. <laughs> translation, my own translation. Without brains, without honor, without love, and without pity. Now, think about those adjectives, and think about that applied to your community. 21 adjectives, and the last of it being without brains, honor, love, or pity. Would you like to be part of a community like that? Would you like to have a group of people like that that you're really a part of? That sounds like hell, right? Doesn't that sound like hell? And Paul is saying, if God lets things run its natural way, and we do exactly what we want, Life in community looks like hell. It looks like extreme selfishness. We just do what we want and don't care about anybody else. And we end up not only corrupted, but cut off from others. Now, what I'm saying is pretty controversial, because we like to think we can do whatever we want without consequence. Uh, but not just the Bible, but uh, others, and not just theologians, but even non-believers have noticed this reality. David Foster Wallace was probably one of the best essayists of the last 50 years. And in his uh, somewhat famous address at Kenyon College a number of years ago, uh, he noticed this. And I'm going to read a large section of this. Some of you are like, oh, no, a large section. This is really good. Listen carefully. It's amazing. Again, David Foster Wallace is not a Christian, to my knowledge, unless he converted before he shot himself. Um, I don't think he did. But he notices this about life in America. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. No such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. 
And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough. You will never feel like you have enough. And that's the truth. If you worship your body and your beauty and your sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally bury you. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. If you worship your intellect, listen carefully, nerds, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Now, on one level, we all know this stuff, right? It's been codified as myths and proverbs and cliches and parables forever. The trick, the hard thing, is keeping the truth up front in your daily consciousness. But this is the thing. The insidious thing about these kinds of worship is they are unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being aware of what you're doing. In the real world, that includes the University of Pittsburgh, the city, everywhere you go, the real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and cravings and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in a way that has yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. And that is true. It's the freedom to be lords of our own tiny, skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. And I know that's a lot of stuff. But I think he nails it. By and large, we have the propensity to worship small, diminutive aspects of the good things of life and to make them supreme. And we become slaves of them. And those things will eat us alive. Wealth, power, intellect. And there's nothing in this world that will stand up to you and say, what you're doing is really stupid and destructive and corruptive. Scripture will. And a good friend will. It's a very good reason for you to keep coming to RUF or join a small group or keep up your contacts with your old friends if they know you well. That you might actually know what it is in your heart that's carrying you along. Well, that's, uh, if we ended there, it would be a, a somewhat good but hard message. Um, there's good news. There's good news still to come. Better news than anything I've shared so far. And it's this. That God is determined to fix things and to make things right. And in two ways. God's determined to make things right in two ways. Now the first one doesn't sound like a good solution to most of you. The first is his wrath. Verse 18. That's what this text is about. He's revealing his wrath against all this ungodliness and unrighteousness. Doesn't sound like good news for most of you. And it's because most of us have a hard time imagining God's wrath being anything other than like the fitful rage of an angry toddler, right? Like when you think wrath, we're like, Rah! I could like demonstrate it. We looks like that'd be really funny, but then I had to pull my stuff together and that'd be bad. Um, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, there's, there's a couple reasons for us to take this seriously. Uh, first, what this text says about man's relation to God is pretty important. This text says that even though God created this earth and continues to relate with man, man's natural propensity is to tell God, I don't really care about you very much. I'd rather have something else, please. 
and we've been doing it since the first man. Our attitude toward God is one of hostility and rejection. By nature, we are those that reject the true God and find substitutes. In other words, God is within his rights to be angry at us. He's within his rights. If this, if this text is true, and we are those who by nature say, thanks God for all this good stuff, we don't want you, we want the stuff. God's within his rights to be angry. Uh, secondly, the wrath that's talked about in this chapter is executed in a certain way. It's basically giving people exactly what they want. That's what happens in this text. You may not have noticed it, but three times God gives them over. God basically says here, hey, if you want to worship things that are far less than me and that will corrupt you and end in your destruction, and you're determined to do that, well, go ahead. That is the judgment. That is the wrath. C.S. Lewis wrote, I believe the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the very end and that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. Some of us want what we want. And the scary thing is God might be willing to let us have it to our ruin. There's good news here. That's why Paul wrote more than one chapter. He is determined to make things right. He does want to change his world and restore it. He does want to reclaim his children. He cares about his world and his people like a father. Some of you may have seen this story. It's very interesting. Uh, A father in New Mexico named Emilio Chavez I woke at 2.30 a couple days ago because he heard loud groaning outside of his house. So at 2.30, he and his son walked outside and found a naked man in a bush outside the window of his 13- and 15-year-old daughter. Anyone else disgusted and angry yet? Okay. Well, Emilio Chavez did what almost any father would do. He beat that man severely, right? I mean, that's what most guys would do. Emilio Chavez now faces a longer term in prison than the peeping Tom. It's really interesting, isn't it? Some of you should be saying, like, what? That's crazy. And then just. And part of you should be saying, like, man, I wish I had a dad like that. I wish I had a, God, a dad that cared about me enough, like, to beat the daylights out of the evil <laughs> that, that, that attacks me and threatens me. Now, the question is, you know, why do we want a father like that but not a God? I mean, I think we do want a father like that that protects us and cares for us. But we don't want a God like that. Why don't we want a God like that? Why don't we want a God that executes judgment and wrath? It's because we have a hard time putting together judgment and love. It's really hard for us. It's also because we know, well, maybe I'm not a peeping time in the bush, but I've got issues. Like, I don't want to be the recipient of all that wrath. Like, what about, what about me? And this is where we have good news. That God's not just determined to make things right with his wrath, but also his restoration. He's determined to restore and uh, what he needs to restore is our hearts. He made them right. We've corrupted it. We've gone astray. He needs to restore our hearts and redirect them. And he does that in two ways. He gives us warnings. This is a warning in this chapter. You can have what you want. You can do what you want. You can worship what you want. There are real consequences for it. But he also woos us. Let me show you something so beautiful and so completely overwhelming that you will want to worship for the rest of your life and give your, devote your life to it. That's what God's trying to do in this book. God's out to give us a new love, a new affection, a new devotion. This is the big story. God creates us. We reject them. We take substitutes. And God says, I can leave it to your devices. But how's this? Instead, I'll come down there, get involved in the mess, suffer for you in order to change your hearts. So you might know what I'm really like. What does God do? He sends Jesus. Well, I'm going to share a story here at the end. It's uh, 
partly inspired by 9-11, and it comes with a warning. It comes with a warning that it could get teary up in here. Um, so feel free to cry. And if I start crying, don't laugh at me. So uh, Wells Crowther grew up playing lacrosse and wanted to be a firefighter. Uh, on and off the field, he was a great guy, a leader, and he always carried a red bandana that his father gave him when he was six years old. Uh, after he finished his lacrosse career at Boston College, he moved to New York in 1999 and took a job as an equities trader on the 104th floor of the World Trade Center in the North, excuse me, in the South Tower. And even though he liked business and he liked his job, he told his father that he still wanted to be a firefighter uh, in New York. So at 8.46 a.m. on uh, September 11th, uh, American Airlines flight number 11 slammed into the North Tower. And Wells, already at work in the South Tower, called and left a message for his mom telling her that everything was okay and he was fine. Meanwhile, in the 78th floor where he worked on the South Tower, 200 folks had gathered together in order to evacuate the building. And they were waiting for the elevator when the second plane slammed into the buildings, destroying floors 78 through 84. One young lady there, Ling Young, recounts waking up and comprehending all the dead and dying surrounded by her. She was severely burned and stranded, and she and others felt there was no way out. They feared moving because they thought the floor might collapse underneath them. And she suddenly heard a young man, as if from nowhere, saying, I found the stairs, follow me, only help those you can help. And the young man then proceeded to lead her and others down to the 61st floor where they met firefighters who carried them to safety. He then turned and went back up the stairs. After climbing 17 floors, returning to the burning floor, the 78th, he found other survivors, including Judy Wine. Her husband shared later, after surgery, how she had been lying there when she saw a young man appear out of nowhere going around helping people, basically setting up a triage unit, putting out fires, saying, everyone who can stand, stand now. After being led to the stairway, she saw this young man turn back into the burning lobby again. At 9.59 a.m., the South Tower collapsed. It'll pass. So, uh, some six months later, on um, March 19th, Wells Crowther's body was found. It was found next to uniformed firefighters. And then two months after that, in May, the New York Times published an account from survivors inside the South Tower. His family was reading this account, and particularly a story by Judy Wine, when they noticed her mentioning a mysterious young... <laughs> supposed to be easy if you just read it. A mysterious man wearing a red kerchief, setting up triage and rescuing people. And they knew they'd found their son. According to accounts from survivors, Wells saved as many as 12 people that day. So, uh, today in New Jersey, in the home of Ling Young, a woman he saved, there's it's a photo of Wells Crowther still. So here's Wells Crowther, a man in the red bandana, entering the burning, hellish inferno that was the 78th floor, from which he could have easily escaped a number of different times, willingly and repeatedly, in order to save the lives of others. And it cost him his life. And subsequently now, his red bandana has become a symbol of love and compassion and sacrifice. There's a red bandana race every year at Boston College. And a picture of Wells Crowther is inside the New York City Fire Department. It's the last thing guys see when they leave the office. But now you need to hear this. 
in a world and for people who rejected him, spurned him, chose to worship a substitute rather than him, and whose rejection led to corruption, and at times and places, things like nothing short of death or hell itself, things like, well, the inside of that tower on that day, God came. We made that mess by our rejection and our corruption and our refusal. That's our ungodliness and unrighteousness working itself out. And God came. He did not have to. He came in the person of Jesus, and he showed us again exactly what God's like and his love. And he entered the hellish inferno himself. And he assumed the wrath of God on himself in the cross. And he did it to save the lives of people he loves. He did it out of love. And what I want you to know in a message that's hard like this is that there's an invitation, an opportunity for you to take this message of God's love into your heart into that heart that's prone to misdirection and misdirected devotion and latch on to it, to what God's done for you, and watch it begin to renew you, to redirect you, to fix your devotion, to restore your humanity, and even to redeem your relationships. Okay, let's pray together. Good Heavenly Father, we thank you that... uh, in the examples of all kinds of wonderful people,